Good morning. I'm glad to see all of you here today. I saw some folks who are visiting with us. They come down from another state, and we have that throughout the year. We have people who come from all over the country and Canada. I want to welcome those who are worshiping with us online today as well. Now, last Sunday, I preached a sermon about the history of the Bible. A lot of people told me they really learned some things about that. If you want to go look it up and listen to it, if you didn't get to hear it last week, it was the first in the series. This series is a little bit different. I'm going to give you a lot of facts. I want you to get your outlines out, and you can write down some things and kind of know where we're going. There's some things that you might want to remember, and so if you'll write them down, you'll remember them. I hope that you will do that. Now, when I talked about the history of the Bible last week, the main purpose of this whole series on the Bible is to help people read the Bible and then apply the Bible, to read it every day, to have a quiet time, to spend time with God. Let me tell you what happened. At the 8.30 service, one of my guys who comes on a regular basis, he said, listen, I want to thank you for the sermon last week. He said, last Monday I started reading my Bible every day, and I've got one of those little things I can read through the Bible in a year. Man, that was a victory. I was so excited about that. That was tremendous. I went back there to talk to him about football yesterday, and he told me, hey, listen, I'm reading the Bible. I hope that if you're not doing it, that you will. And I shared with you last week that I didn't always do it every day. I tried to do it most days. I did do it faithfully. And then I went to minister's conference at Lake Junaluska, North Carolina. While I was there, I heard a guy talk. He talked about having a little daily journal. I won't go through all that again. But I got one of those journals, and now I've been through several of them. I just want to encourage you, if you're not reading your Bible every day, spending time in prayer, I want to encourage you, you can get it online, you can get it so many different ways, but if you'll read the scriptures they give you, it'll show you how to read through the Bible in a year, and I've been doing it for 20-something years now, and I, I want to commend it to you. It's a great way to study the Bible. Now, in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it says this, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, every time I see that scripture, it reminds me of when I was in seminary. When I was going to Asbury Seminary, my wife, Law, was going to Asbury College. We were married. We were living in a little uh, house out in the country because we had a student appointment, two little churches on a charge that I served there. And so we would commute every day to school. It was about a 35-minute drive. And so I was in an evangelism class, and our professor wanted us to memorize Scripture. And so I had it all written out on these little cards. And as we were driving, I would drive, and Laura would hold a card, and I would quote the Scripture, trying to memorize it so I'd be prepared for the test. I mean, I did that for weeks and weeks and weeks. Now, I'll tell you something about Laura. She's an auditory learner. That means if she hears it one time, she has it. She remembers it. Not only that, if it's technical, if it's a paragraph, you know, I'll hear a preacher speak, and she and I'll be sitting together, and I'll say, I'm going to get that illustration from him. And she said, I think I can write it down for you. And she'll write it down word for word. That's just disgusting, isn't it? Somebody <laughs> could be that smart. I mean, she could have graduated from college summa cum laude. I graduated, oh, laude, how come? I'm just telling you. 
they're very different, you know. She, she's able to hear it and remember it. I have to process it and work on So I would remember those things. Well, she memorized that scripture way before I did, but I would keep doing it. And keep doing it. She was patient with me, and she would, you know, we'd go through every one of those things every morning and every afternoon coming back from school. But what it's saying is that the Bible is God-breathed. It's inspired Word of God. Now, last Sunday we said that the Bible is alive. It's a living Word. It's God's Word. It's different from any other book. If you've ever read the Bible, you know that every time you read the Bible, what happens? It's something new. It's fresh. There's not any other book that you can read that's like that. You may have a favorite book that you like to read all the time, but it's going to be the same story, and it's going to end the same way. Sometimes Laura likes those alternate endings to think, well, I'd like that if it just had an alternate ending. I said, well, just make one up and go with it. I, I think you ought to, you know, so you could enjoy it. Now, God's will will give you, his word will give you everything you need to do everything he calls you to do. And I want to share some facts with you. Did you know the Bible is a best-selling book? One of the best-selling in the world today. And it has been for many, many years. I told you the title of this series is, I want to thank both of you who remembered that, <laughs> bestseller. That's right, because it is a bestseller. You like to read bestsellers? Well, let me commend the Bible to you. It's a really good one, okay? But now here's something that just, I, when I heard this fact, I was shocked. I couldn't believe this. This amazed me. The Bible is also the most shoplifted book in history. That doesn't make any sense at all. God, I'm just going to steal this Bible so I can read it. Okay, you just let me have it. I, you know, they, what are they thinking? Okay, it just, I don't get it. Now, truthfully, it isn't just one book. It's 66 books. And let me tell you how many words it has in the Bible. 773,692 words. Now, if you were to read the Bible straight through, it would take you about 70 hours if you read it out loud to read it. But what's amazing is it's written by all kinds of different people. It's written by politicians and statesmen. It's written by farmers and shepherds. It's written by peasants and musicians and poets. It's even written by tax collectors, okay? The Bible is also written in many different places. It's written by Moses in the wilderness. It's written by Jeremiah in the dungeon. It's written by Luke while he's traveling. It's written by Paul when he's in prison. It's written by John while he was in exile on the Isle of Patmos. And it's written in 13 different countries, three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. It's written in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. And what's amazing is, even though it's written by all those different people in all those different places, and it took about 1,500 years to write it, its accuracy and consistency is just un uncharacteri uncharacteristic. It's about the character and the nature of God and His redemptive plan for mankind. Now, the Bible is the Word of God. Whenever you read the Bible, think of your daddy writing you a letter, a love letter. And it's written to you, and you can read it, and he's speaking to you, and it's kind of a road map, a game plan for life. You can follow it and live by the principles of the Bible. That's what God intended in so many ways. It's a book that is consistent and true and inspired, and it covers a tremendous amount of topics. So let's talk for a few minutes about the reliability of the Bible. Is it trustworthy? Is it true? Is it accurate? Or is it just the opinions of a bunch of people? 
1952, there was a historian named Steve Sanders. Steve Sanders came up with three specific tests that you could use to evaluate the authenticity of the Bible. Now, this is your outline today. We're going to walk through these quickly. We won't take a lot of time, but I just want you to try to understand this, all right? The first one is the internal test. That's number one. What's the internal test? The internal test asks the question, do the writers of the Bible claim their writings are true? Now, in 2 Peter 1.16, it says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In other words, Peter is saying, hey, I was there. I saw it for myself. It's not something that we made up. I saw it firsthand, and you can believe that it's true. Now, when the New Testament was written, it was written between 47 and 95 A.D., and there were plenty of first-generation believers alive who saw firsthand what the Bible was talking about. Now listen, if it hadn't been true, they could have refuted it at any time and said that's not true, but they didn't say that. Clearly across the board, the Bible passes the internal test. Okay, the second one is the external test, okay? Now what's the external test? Well, it asks the question, what does outside evidence say about the Bible? In other words, what do non-biblical sources say about the Bible? Do they confirm the biblical stories, or do they say those aren't really true? Well, first of all, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the historical authenticity of Jesus Christ is well established. You can read all sorts of non-biblical writings about Jesus. The Roman writers wrote about him. The Greek writers wrote about him. The Jewish sources, they all affirm that Jesus Christ really did live. He was really here. Not only that, but the first century historian, Josephus, wrote about Jesus. He wrote about John the Baptist. He wrote about James. And he wrote about all sorts of leaders that we read about in the book of Acts. So we've obviously got historical writings that affirm much of what happened. But what about archaeology? How does that help us? Well, truthfully, for many years, critics discredited the Bible because they said archaeological discoveries didn't support enough of Scripture. And in many cases, they had a valid statement. But in the 20th century, with all the archaeological finds, all these claims to discredit the Bible have been reversed. Now there's an absolute truth. While we cannot accurately say that archaeology completely proves the authority of the Bible, it is fair to say that archaeological evidence provided external confirmations for literally hundreds of biblical statements. We're finding archaeological discoveries that confirm the truth of what Scripture says. Now, there was a guy named Nelson Gluick, the former president of the Jewish Theological Seminary and one of the great all-time archaeologists. He said, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever been controverted by the biblical reference. In other words, they've never said, hey, that didn't happen because every time it measures up with what the Bible says. So that's good for the external test. Now, the third test is the bibliographic test, okay? And it asks the question, how well were the original documents, documents translated to today? For example, there's only one original manuscript, and then copies were made of it. 
Sometimes they made a lot of copies. Sometimes they didn't make many copies. Let's talk about how the copies were made of the Old Testament. First of all, what's amazing is that they would actually count the letters in the Old Testament. They would count and find the center letter, the central letter, the middle letter of the whole Old Testament. And then when they got the manuscript and it was complete, if they found one mistake anywhere in there, they would destroy the whole thing. Well, the Old Testament, there were copies because what happened is they would either wear out or they'd be ceremonially burned or they would be destroyed if there were any imperfections found. So for centuries, the most reliable and well-respected Hebrew manuscript was known as the Masoretic Text. The Masoretic Text. Now, here's the amazing thing about that. In the year 70 A.D., the Romans were attacking the Jewish people, and they were trying to destroy their culture and especially their religious heritage. So the Jewish people took their scrolls. You remember I told you they wrote on scrolls? They took their scrolls, and they would put them in Bibles and they would, uh, bottles, and they would hide them somewhere most likely in caves. For 1,800 years, these historic writings and biblical scrolls remained completely hidden. But in 1947, a Bedouin shepherd stumbled on some old bottles. And inside, he found what became known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, I've been to Israel. When you go to Israel, one of the places they take you in the desert is the Dead Sea. As we were driving along, going to the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea's over here on the other side of the Dead Sea's the Jordan. And over here on the right, as we're riding the bus going down there, they said, do you see those caves over there? That's where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. So I've driven by there a couple of times. And what's amazing is that when they got those things, the archaeologists then went and discovered 11 other sources of these ancient scrolls. And when they compared the Dead Sea Scrolls to the Messiatic text, the accuracy was stunning. In other words, it was the same thing. It didn't matter where the source came from. God had done that. He had worked through people to make that happen. So let's wrestle with the question, how accurate are the biblical copies? Well, let's compare the Bible to some of the other historical writings. For example, the Odyssey, the Iliad by Homer, was a non-biblical historical writing around that time. How many copies do you think we have of that? We got about 643 of that. Now, Plato's Republic, we've got seven copies. Aristotle, we have five. Caesar, we have ten. So the most accepted non-biblical historical writing that we have is the writing of Homer with 643 copies. How many copies, historical copies, do we have in the New Testament? 24,000. Wow, 24,000. When you compare that against any other historical writing, there's no doubt the Bible stands alone and it passes the bibliographical test. Now, how many of you like to go to the movies? Anybody like to go to the movies in here? How many of you don't really care for movies? How many of you really don't care either way? You're not really interested in that. You know, the thing about my wife, Laura, whenever we watch a movie, she's so smart, she figures everything out before it's over. She'll say, hey, that's going to happen. I'll say, man, I, I didn't even know. I wasn't, I'm having trouble keeping up. I don't even know what's going on. You already tell me what the end is going to be. You know, she's already got that stuff figured out. She's looking ahead. If she can't figure it out, it's pretty good. You know, it's pretty sharp, okay? Well, when you watch those movies, do you ever like to predict what's going to happen? 
You ever like to say, oh, oh this is, I, I can see what's coming now. Well, you know, when you figure that out, when you read Scripture, one of the things that amazes me the most about the Old Testament are the predictions of what's called prophecies. They're prophecies that are spoken in the Bible. And in the Old Testament, the prophecy would prophesy what's going to happen in the New Testament or what's going to happen later on after the New Testament, what might happen in modern times today. Now, in a few moments, I'm going to show you some of the prophecies of Jesus, okay? There's a professor named Peter Stoner who took 12 of his classes. He was going to prove that these prophecies were amazing, okay? And here's what you're going to see. He had about 600 students, so he had enough to help him with this study. And he said, we're going to study the likelihood of some prophecies being fulfilled, okay? For example, it's prophesied that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. So about the time of Jesus' birth, they found out what the population of the world was at that time, and they set out to answer this question. What are the odds of a person being born in Bethlehem? And they put a number on it during that time when Jesus was being born. Now they took eight specific prophecies about Jesus, and they did this study with all of them, and then they worked on their numbers and they came up with a mathematical number that they could come up with estimating from what they knew about the historic records. They gave that to a group of people, kind of a, a governing board of statistics. And that governing board of statistics, they put their stamp of approval. They said, your numbers are accurate and they are acceptable. So what they were looking at, these eight different prophecies, they put them together. And then they asked this question, what are the odds of these eight specific things happening to one person. In other words, how could this happen with Jesus, okay? And here were the odds. One in ten with 17 zeros behind it. I don't even know what that number is. Forrest Gump might say that's a gazillion. I don't know. But, but it's one in ten with 17 zeros behind it. Now, what's the likelihood of finding that. Well, here's what I want you to imagine. Let's say that you got a silver dollar, okay? And you put a big red X on that silver dollar. And then you go to Texas and you drop that silver dollar somewhere in Texas. And then you drop two feet of silver dollars all over the state of Texas. You take somebody else out there, you put a blindfold on them, they stumble around, they reach down and pick up a silver dollar, and that's the chance they have of finding that one silver dollar with an X on it. Does that kind of help you understand? Anybody ever driven across Texas? Yeah. I, I just drove across part of it. It took me a month to get there. I, it was amazing. I, you know, I, it's a difficult thing to do. So the prophecies that God fulfilled in his life. Now, I want to look at those for Jesus. It is prophesied in Isaiah 7 that Jesus would be born of a virgin. It says the virgin will be with child and give birth to a son. And in Matthew 1, it was fulfilled. It was prophesied in Micah 5 that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. And it was fulfilled in Matthew 2. In Isaiah 11, it said Jesus would be anointed by the Spirit. And that was fulfilled in Matthew 3 and also in John 12. In Psalm 41, Jesus would be betrayed by a friend. And in the 26th chapter of Matthew, that prophecy was fulfilled as well. The Old Testament said that Jesus would be silent before his accusers, and the New Testament, that prophecy came true. In Isaiah 50, it said Jesus would be beaten and spat upon, and in Matthew 26, it was confirmed. 
Concerning Jesus in Psalm 22, it said they would one day cast lots for his clothing. And in John 19, that was fulfilled. In Psalm 118, it showed that one day he would rise again. And in Mark 16, that's exactly what happened. It could have been all of you do the same thing. What would be the best thing that you and I could do together to bring change into the world? What would that be? In other words, if I could get everybody in here to do one thing, and you would do what I said, that would just be wonderful. That would, that would just be heaven, wouldn't it, if everybody would just do what I said? I mean, if I could just get my family to do what I said, it would be great. But getting all of y'all, can you imagine? And so if, if I could say one thing that would bring about the most change in the world, it would be to get you to read God's Word every day and apply it to your life. Pray about it, read it, and then say, Lord, now help me do this and apply it. Because you would, if you applied it, you would be godly in all your ways. You'd be full of the joy of God. You would be generous. You would be prayerful. You would be mission-minded. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For the grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And the truth is, we can be made right with God, not because of what we do, but because of what he did for us, right? We've looked at some facts about the Bible. We've looked at some tests about the Bible. We've looked at some prophecies about the Bible. Maybe you learned something today. But now I'd like to wrap this up by just sharing with you a few prophecies that are yet to come about. These are some that we're going to yet to, we're yet to see, okay? Now write down these scriptures if you don't mind, and then go home and read them yourself this afternoon. I'm just going to read through them. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together and with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so will be the Lord. We'll be with the Lord forever. And then in Revelation 19, 11 through 16, it says this, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like a blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven are following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And then it says in 11 through 16, uh, it goes on and says, He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress with the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And then in Revelation 7, 9 through 12, it says this, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength to be with our God forever and ever. Amen. Now, do you know what the definition of amen is? What that means is, so be it. When God speaks to us and we say amen, we're saying, so be it, Lord. We want to see that happen. Now, listen, when I read you those prophecies there, did that kind of get your attention? Someday that's going to happen. Now, would you rather read the Bible between now and then or just kind of not do that? I'm just asking, okay? Because <laughs> if you want to know what's going on in the Bible, you need to read it, you need to pray, you need to turn to God daily, and you need to grow in your faith. So you're not surprised when all that stuff takes place. You've been reading about it for years, and you're prepared and ready because of what God has done in your life. Let's pray together. Father, we're just so grateful for your word and its reliability. Lord, I pray that we would just realize how many people died so that that word could be available to us today. I pray that we would read it daily, that we would spend time thinking about it, that we would maybe journal each day, that we would pray, that we would spend time with you, that we would listen to what you want to share with us, that your word might just jump out off the page to us, and that we might apply it to our lives. And I thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.